You know, how many of you in your childhood ever had that gift that you wanted more than any other? Maybe it was a red bike or, I don't know, a transformer or something like that for your birthday or Christmas. Anybody? I mean, you couldn't stop thinking about it. You were obsessed with it, hoping for this gift. Well, I had one. My 10th Christmas on planet Earth. I wanted a gift that I think I definitely wanted more than any other gift up until that point, and maybe more than I've wanted anything else in my life. I wanted a BB gun. <laughs> Ten-year-old Chris and a BB gun are not a good match. So my parents, in all their wisdom, they are wise, but I am poking fun. i got to be careful, though, because one of them is standing right there, uh, bought me a bow and arrow instead. <laughs> Didn't think I was ready for a BB gun. So got me a bow and arrow. What's the logic there? Something that could cause maybe at the very worst you to lose an eye versus something that could impale a lung. You know, I don't, I don't get it. But I got a bow and arrow, and my hopes were dashed. I wasn't excited about the bow and arrow. I made the best of it. Now, but the next year, I did end up getting a BB gun. I shot many people with it. I was shot many times with it. Some of those people I shot, I knew. Some, I was just a sniper with friends out my window. Not a good scene. But maybe you've had hopes like that, and some of them have been fulfilled. Some of them have been dashed. Maybe some of you were waiting for dad to come home. He promised he would, and you waited for weeks, waking up every morning, hoping he would be there, only to find that he had broken his promise. She said that you were the love of your life and you hoped it would end in marriage, but it didn't last and you promised never to hope again. You worked so hard and you hoped that your boss would notice your work ethic and your competencies, but office politics stole what was rightfully yours. Hope is a dangerous thing. We've all been encouraged and delighted and hope fulfilled and we've all tasted the agony of hurt and loneliness and despair when hope is dashed. We often escape to the bottle or to drugs or to sexual sin or to endless entertainment to our screens. We find that one more hookup, one more pill, one more puff, one more drink works for a while until all of a sudden we can do anything we want except abstain from that pill or that puff, or that entertainment, or that affair. We are creatures designed by God to hope. We want something to look forward to, whether it's the end of the day, the end of the week, uh, the end of the summer when we go on vacation. Ultimately, we are reservoirs, endless reservoirs, bottomless pits of hope. We're looking to hope in something more, something eternal, something that matters Romans 5, verse 1. You can turn there. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now to be instructed by you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate your word. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with hope. Or that you would focus this reservoir of hope, this ocean of hope that rests inside our soul on you. Holy Spirit, would you help us discern between hope in the world that will lead to despair and loneliness and confusion and the hope that only you can give through the justification that comes by faith in Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul here, like a skilled lawyer through Romans, makes his case, and he uses key witnesses like David and Abraham from the Old Testament we read about last week. He uses them for the defense of the one true gospel. We've already read Paul's case that humanity is lost beyond saving and that God's intervention is absolutely necessary. Then we read that salvation is available to anyone who cries out for Christ, regardless of identity, sin, or heritage, both for the moral and the immoral, both for the religious and the irreligious, that we're saved by grace that's unearned and free. And now we move into Romans 5, where the same theme continues all the way through Romans 8, verse 39, and it highlights the one hope that will never, ever let us down that believers have hope in the future glory of the coming Christ and that we have eternal life that starts now and echoes throughout all of eternity. These first 11 verses of Romans 5 shows us that justification by faith changes everything, that we're not justified, that is, we're not made right with God by our works, by our good deeds, but only through faith in Christ. It's huge. In 1 John 3, verse 19, it says, Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. Justification through faith allows us even to ignore our condemning thoughts and feelings. In Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. In my favorite, Galatians 2.20, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're justified, that is, we're declared not guilty through the cross of Christ. But the resurrection of Christ, that the, the work of Christ that offers us abundant life in the here and now and forever is what it means to be in Christ. He rose again so that we could be in him. It's easier for me to imagine Christ ahead of me or with me or beside me. It's a little harder for me to imagine Christ in me. But yet Paul uses those words or similar words 216 times. John uses them 26 times, so they must be important that we are in Christ. 
If you can't remember anything else to be thankful for in your Christian walk every day to every moment to say, thank you, Lord, that I am in Christ, that is our identity, no matter what the voices around us or in us say to the contrary. No movement or religion implies that the living presence of its founder is in its followers. Muhammad doesn't. Buddha doesn't. Secular humanism doesn't. They might entice or influence or instruct, but they don't claim their founder dwells in them. Colossians 1.27, for God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. It's pretty important when the Bible says, this is the secret. This is the secret to it all right here. Christ lives in you. That gives you assurance of sharing in his glory. We share in his glory now as he makes us like himself, and we share in his glory and we see him face to face one day when he gives us our new bodies and takes away every tear, all sorrow, all pain, all sin. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. So to be justified means the sovereign act of God where he declares righteous the believing sinner while she is still in a sinning state. And it happens through faith in the finished work of Christ and it's monumental. So we look tonight at the overflow or the benefits of justification through faith. That is, we don't say that, hey, I'm better than the next guy or I'm more moral than the next guy or I'm more religious or I go to more church services or I know more of the Bible or I'm nicer to people. That's not how we're justified to God. Uh, we're not justified before God. We're justified through faith in Christ. And there are benefits that come from that. The first here we read in Romans 5 is peace with God. In Romans 5 verse 1 it says, again, as a reminder, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. If you know and love Jesus, you know what a sweet position you're in. It says here that we now stand in God's grace, and grace is a very important word. It's very important, and it's one that we gloss over because we hear it so early in our Christian life. It doesn't get the, the press it deserves. You know, the funny thing is that Jesus never uses the word grace. You know that? I was looking at that, that's, Jesus never, I was looking at that this week. He never uses the word grace, but he demonstrates it time and time again in the gospel. And one of my favorite stories of the grace of Christ in the gospel comes from John chapter 8, verse 1. We can read about it. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. Let me back up real quick here. When we read the gospels and we read about the grace of Christ, you know what Jesus more oftentimes than not does? Sometimes he chooses the rich. Sometimes he chooses the influential. But more often than not, it's the outcast. It's the person that no one would expect for God to give a second chance to. That no one would expect God in the flesh to focus the laser of his love and grace on. The outcast, the nobodies, the one the religious, religious elite would just brush to the side and that's what Jesus does here, John 8, verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd sued gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was teaching, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? So picture this. 
a group of very religious, uh, or a, very, a group of very influential religious leaders bring this woman caught in the act of adultery. Now, how that happened, whether one of them caught her or what, I don't know, but I can't imagine how humiliating this would have been for this woman. I don't know how you picture her, but I picture her crying. I picture her barely clothed and most certainly humiliated before these influential people. So the law said stone her. She was a dead woman walking if it weren't for Jesus. It says in verse 6, they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. So these men didn't care about this woman. They were just using, uh, using her as a pawn to try to discredit Jesus, to try to trap him. But Jesus stoops down, and I think this is significant because the Hebrew word for grace actually means to stoop down. And the readers would have understood this. And Jesus stoops down to write in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. We don't know why he wrote. But we know that he's lower than anyone else in this story, including the woman. And maybe he did this simply to divert the eyes of all those people looking at this woman, humiliating her. Maybe it was to bring her an ounce of dignity in a horrific time. In verse 7, they, that is, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, kept demanding an answer. Okay, so Jesus was probably, you know, just trying to take the attention away from her, put it on him. Hey, Jesus, what do you think? Should we stone her? Should we stone her? Should we stone her? Jesus stood up and he placed himself, this is important, between the lynch mob and this woman. And he, he commits career suicide. Here's what he said is in verse 9. When the accusers heard this, or let me back up, they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again, and he wrote in the dust. Verse 9, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you. Then he goes on to say, well, neither do I. The voices in our world and in our head say, you're a loser. You'll never amount to anything. You're, you're dumb. You're ugly. Or you have it all figured out. You're better than anybody, everybody else. Or you're never going to measure up. You're a fake. Satan never stops speaking condemnation through these voices, he never stops. But Jesus stands up and he gets in the way between us and the condemning voice of our accuser. In Revelation 12, verse 9, it says, This great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. He never stops accusing. But Satan doesn't get the last word because Jesus stooped low. He stooped low enough to sleep in a manger, to work as a carpenter, to sleep in a fishing boat, low enough to rub shoulders with crooks and prostitutes and lepers. 
low enough to be spat upon, to be slapped, to be nailed to a cross and buried in an empty tomb. Then he stood up out of the grave on the third day and stood between us and even death, the ultimate punishment for sin. In Romans 8, 34, it says, who then, will who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he's sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us, compounding and confronting and standing between the voice of the accuser and us. That's what it means to have peace with God, to be in Christ, that he's working, he's not twiddling his thumbs, he's living to make intercession for us. So we stand in grace. That means we stand with a clean conscience, a clean heart, a clean record, free from accusation as we look forward to our future glory when Christ returns. Now, I'm not sure about this, but I think this is my opinion based on how Paul words this next verse in verse 3. I think that he's responding to a potential argument that he knew his listeners, his audience, these uh, Roman, Jewish, and Gentile Christians who were very young in their faith were struggling with in their head. And I think the argument that they were struggling with, and again, in the, his audience's mind, went something like this. Okay, I know I can have peace with God that fills me with joy, but what about when life turns up the heat and I'm really suffering? Have any of you ever felt that? Man, my faith is cool, but when it hits the fan, then I kind of feel like, well, if I could just sell the house, then I'll have peace. If I could just settle this relationship, this issue, this problem I'm having with this person, then I'll have peace. If I could just get over this problem I'm having, then I'll have peace. If I can just get through these financial difficulties, then I'll have peace. If I can just get some rest and relax relaxation, and if these kids would just stop driving me nuts, then I'll have peace. I think that's what Paul was responding to. And here's his rebuttal, I believe again. Romans 5, verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. This leads to our second benefit that overflows from justification through faith, and that is hope that is strengthened by tough circumstances. For the Christ follower, this is good news. It means that through our struggles, our hope in our present position of peace with God now and our future position of sharing in his glory is strengthened and not deflated through suffering. That what feels like it's going to kill you is actually going to help you become closer to Jesus and make your faith more real. I read a book years ago when I was going through uh, some of the greatest trials that I've ever faced in my life all at once. It's called A Grace Disguised by Gerald Sitzer. I like it because not only does it present a solid theology of suffering, but it does so through this man's experiences. You see, he lost his mom, his sister, and his baby daughter in one single car accident that he was involved in. 
and the rest of his kids, he had three other kids, they survived. So he's doing mouth to mouth, trying to uh, take care of his kids. Uh, They're heartbroken. They're struggling. They have all kinds of medical problems. And he's dealing with unbearable loss that I can't even imagine. And I just want to read some excerpts from this book that should be up on the screen. It's a lot, but I took different sections, and I want us to get this, his experience, because I think it's very real, and I think it paints an awesome picture of what it means to experience the glory of Christ through our suffering. He says, I wanted to pray, but had no idea what to say, as if struck dumb by my own pain. Groans became the only language I could use, if even that, but I believed it was language enough for God to understand. I remember reading what the Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Romans, that sometimes when overcome by suffering, we do not know how to pray. But Paul said our numbness, dumbness before God is not offensive to him or indicative of a lack of faith. Instead, it's an invitation for God to draw near and to intercede for us with groans that words cannot express, like a good mother does when holding a distraught child on her lap. This nightly solitude, as painful and demanding as it was, became sacred to me because it allowed time for genuine mourning and intense reflection. It also gave me freedom during the day to invest my energy into teaching and caring for my children. I struggled with exhaustion as I do now, but somehow I found the strength, God's gift to me, I think, to carry on despite getting so little sleep. My schedule was packed with responsibilities at work and home. I taught classes at the college, advised students, attended meetings, and then returned home to cook meals, fold laundry, and spend time with children. I performed these duties because I had to, but I looked at life like a man having an out-of-body experience. The pain was relentless, but that's only half the story. The decision to face the darkness, even if it led to overwhelming pain, showed me that the experience of loss itself does not have to be the defining moment of our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to the loss. Simply being alive became holy to me. As I saw myself typing exams, chatting with a student on the way to class, or tucking one of my children into bed, I sensed I was beholding something sacred. In other words, though I experienced death, I also experienced life in ways that I never thought possible before. Not after the darkness, as we might suppose, but in the darkness. I did not go through pain and come out the other side. Instead, I lived in it and found within that pain the grace to survive and eventually grow. I did not get over the loss of my loved ones. Rather, I absorbed the loss into my life like soil receives decaying matter until one day it became part of who I am. Sorrow took up permanent residence in my soul and enlarged it. This man paints a great picture of suffering for the believer. We don't have to ignore loss. We don't have to pace on and everything, pace on and everything's okay, happy Christian face. We don't have to medicate through it. We don't have to try to ignore it. We don't have to try to make the best of it or drown in self-pity. You see, those who don't know Christ and therefore try to justify themselves by their own works, that is their own standards that they can't keep, their own perspective on right and wrong, morality, And also those who know Jesus but live as if they're justified by works, they're in a tough place when it comes to suffering. You know why? Because when suffering comes, they either fall into having a chip on their shoulder, drowning in self-pity, becoming bitter at everyone else, 
or they think that God owes them something. And they limit their intimacy with him because of that. But here we see this man applying the truth of Romans 5. That is, suffering provides a house cleaning for the soul for the Christ follower. It blows out the dust of indifference as we face the greater questions of life. It gets rid of busyness and focuses our attention on what's very important. It drowns our self-importance because we, we sense more acutely our brokenness and our need for Christ. And somehow the sweetness of the cross and the resurrection become more real to us and we grow closer to Christ than we ever thought possible. Or we grow hard-hearted and further from him. But if we walk in Christ, if we celebrate and live in the joy of our position of being in Christ, we become more gracious to others in their struggles. We don't become more skeptical of others, more complaining, more judgmental, but more understanding of human weakness. We're more merciful to those who are suffering because we've been there. Our witness both to those who are far from Christ and to other believers is strengthened because we speak from experience. You see, because like it says in verse 3 in Romans 5, there's a chain reaction of growth that happens. So I showed a picture of it through this man in this book, his testimony. Now I'm going to show you in Romans 5 how it works the mechanics of it. There's a chain reaction of growth that happens when we suffer in Christ. It says suffering leads to perseverance, and this word means single-mindedness. Suffering makes us focus on what really matters, what's lasting. It removes distractions. It shows us who we really are. Verse 4 says that perseverance, if we'll give ourselves to it, leads to character. That is perseverance. We don't just let the world suck us in with its distractions and medication through suffering. But we persevere and it leads to character. And character means testedness. This is a quality that comes from having gone through a tough experience. It's a confidence in Christ that weathers the storms. It's like a team that's been to the championship before. Unfortunately, I've had many teams go to the championship, but we won very few. But at least we've been there, and we know what it's like, and they don't get flustered because they've been there before. So it is when our character is tested, we become stronger servants of Christ. And all this leads to hope that doesn't put us to shame. It doesn't let us down. There's a stronger and more real confidence in one's peace with God and access to God and Picture and hope in his future glory. Because we felt him and we've seen him in the darkness of suffering. All it took for Mary Magdalene when she saw the risen Christ was for Jesus to say her name. And she responded with glory and praise. Why? Because she knew him. So it is when the Holy Spirit pours the love of Christ out into our hearts, according to Romans 5.5 5 here. We know him because we've experienced him through suffering. The love and tenderness of Christ becomes so real, so palatable in suffering, that somehow when we suffer and we're in Christ, and I could hear the testimony of probably about 100 of you in here that would verify this, you'll say it was the best of times and also the worst of times, because I've never tasted of Jesus in a way that was so satisfying. It was as if I got saved all over again. 
It's one thing to be strengthened in our minds through apologetics, but the apologetics of our heart are only strengthened through suffering. I know him because he came to me in my darkest night and rescued me. I want you to grab a piece of paper and a pen now or your phone and open up your notes app or what have you. Uh, and I want to do a reality check. So I actually want us all to write this down. I'm going to write it down too. And it's going to gauge how we've handled suffering in our past. How have we handled it? And you're not going to turn this in and I'm not going to put it on PowerPoint or send it out on a church-wide email or anything like that. I'm only going to send it out to 30 random people, okay, that I'm going to pick randomly from our email. I'm not going to do that. Sometimes when I joke, people only hear a little bit of it. Like when I joked about, never mind, I'm not even going to say it because then people are going to believe it again. I'm joking about emailing it out to 30 people. I'm not, no one's going to see this except for you and anyone you choose to show it to. Suffering can either make us hard and cold towards God and others, or it can draw us closer. So these are some questions that will help us evaluate um, how we're responding to suffering in our life. So here's the first, and we'll just take them one at a time. I'll give you a minute or so to respond, and you probably will not have time to uh, get into this uh, the way that you'd like to, but at least can give you a start. Maybe you can work on it more tonight or tomorrow. So think about a time in life where you went through a trial, where there was significant suffering. Some of you are in that time now, or for most of you, I'm sure it doesn't take more than a moment to recall it. Did your suffering lead you to focus on what really matters? Did it focus your attention more on prayer and the character of God? Did you draw near to God or escape into other things? Why don't you go ahead and write that down now? The second question here, and again, I know you probably didn't get more than a couple words written down, but you can come back to it. Did your suffering make you more tested? In other words, did you follow through despite your fears? Follow through meaning follow through in, in pursuing Christ. Are you less fearful and controlling of your life now? Do you give Jesus more or less control of your life as a result? All right, last one here, number three. Did it lead to a deeper experience of God's love? Was there a greater closeness with the Lord as friend and father, as daddy? 
You know, for some of you tonight, as you went through those questions, you had no idea how to answer them. Maybe you think you have a relationship with Jesus, you've gone to church, but there's no warmth towards Christ. He's not seen as an ever-present help for you in times of suffering. Maybe he's seen as a get-out-of-hell get free card. There's a prayer that you prayed maybe a long time ago. But when you answer these questions, you are realizing right now that the Lord has no relationship to your suffering, that 100% of the time you look to other things. If that's the case, I want to challenge you right now. I want to challenge you out of love. I don't want you to have a false security in your salvation because if you can't answer any of these questions with, I sensed, experienced, walked in the comfort of Christ through suffering, it means you don't know him. You don't know him. And I want to lead you in a simple prayer right now where you can submit your life to Christ. You can know that when your heart stops beating, you're going to see him face to face one day. And you can know that you're his child and you can start to lean on him as an ever-present help through suffering. So pray with me if that's your desire. Just agree along with me in your own head. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I realize that I've gone my own way and tried many things to find hope. But I thank you that hope is found in you alone. I admit that I'm a sinner. And right now, I thank you for your cross. I thank you that you bled and you died to take on my sin, to become all of my sin and the sin of the world. And I thank you for your resurrection, that you conquered sin and death, those things that separate me from you. Lord, I receive your cross and your resurrection. By your grace, I now become a person of the cross, a person of the resurrection. I thank you, Lord. I, I cry out that you would rescue me from my sin, and I thank you that now I'm in you. I want to follow you forever. Please give me the grace to persevere. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made that, if you prayed that prayer tonight, please talk to somebody you know who loves Jesus. So the last overflow of justification through faith is friendship with Christ. Friendship with Christ. He not only justified us and pardoned us, but he reconciled us to himself, it says. And that means he loves us. He wants us. He wants a relationship with us. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just pretty amazing because... Uh, we had nothing to offer. We were running away from him. We were choosing other things besides him, but he died for those who hated him, people like you and me. It reminds me of the story of a notorious criminal in the gospel, a man named Barabbas. We read about him in Luke 23, verse 14. This is Pilate, who was a governor, 
Pilate says, you brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us, as you can see. He has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Uh, Kimball, you can go ahead and come on up here for, for worship. So the last sentence sums up the character of this notorious criminal. Barabbas was a murderer and a rebel. He was defiant, belligerent, guilty. The epitome of a sinner. But the crowds want Pilate to execute Jesus instead of this guilty scumbag. The governor Pilate has no context for this Jesus guy, and he has no desire to execute an innocent man. And Pilate, in fact, makes four attempts to release Jesus. In John 18, he tells the Jews to settle the matter themselves. He then passes the matter on to Herod. We read about that in Luke 23. He tries to persuade the Jews to take Jesus as the prisoner released at Passover, as was Roman custom in Mark 15. Finally, he offers a compromise by whipping Jesus instead of execution in Luke 23. He does all he can to free Jesus. Why would this Roman governor do that? Because like it says in John 18, 38, Pilate says, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate doesn't realize it at this point, but he's a profound theologian. Paul would record later in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus knew no sin. In Hebrews 4.15 that Jesus was in all point, points tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was perfect, sinless. We, on the other hand, according to Ephesians 2, are dead in our trespasses and sin. We're lost, according to Luke 19.10. We're doomed to perish in John 3.16. We're under the wrath of God in John 3.36. We're blinded in 2 Corinthians 4 and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world in Ephesians 2.12. The message of the Bible is, sim is simple. Life is purposeless and there is no hope apart from Jesus Christ. Our righteous deeds are rubbish and filthy rags to God. We are Barabbas. That's the point of the story. We're to read it and say, look at this. Well, at least I haven't murdered anybody. Look at this guy. We are Barabbas. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Your way may be entertainment or intoxication. My way may be accumulation of things. Another person's way may be sensuality, religious pride, or something else entirely. But all of us have tried our own way apart from God. We won't understand or appreciate grace until we understand who we are, that we are Barabbas. The temptation to the flesh is to constantly think about how good we are. But life in the spirit is supposed to feel like a party because we're getting what we could never possibly earn in a million lifetimes. Barabbas was set free not because the people chose to set him free, although they did. He was set free because only one could die for the sins of all people. Only one could exchange his life for ours, and his name is Jesus he who demonstrated his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we've been saved like this 
through his death, it says, how much more shall we be saved through his life? And I want to go back to a verse I read at the very beginning, if I can get there. In Colossians 1.27, For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too, and this, this is the secret. Christ lives in you. This gives you assurance of sharing his glory. You are not known as depressed. Your name is not discouragement. Your name is not addict. Your name is not rejected. Your name is not lonely. Your name is in Christ. Your home is in Christ. Your future is in Christ. Your anxiety is to be worked out by living in Christ. Your depression is to be worked out by living in Christ. Your addiction, even right when you're falling and right after you're falling, is to be worked out in Christ. The most promising words in all of Scripture and for all of eternity that could be written in any book or recorded in any sermon are just two, in Christ. I am in Christ. I am only saved and rescued from my sin because I am in Christ. Not because I'm in religion, not because I'm in church. I have hope for the future, not because I'm in love or because I'm in a family with children and a husband and a wife. I have hope because I am in Christ. That's it. And the enemy's condemning voice comes in our heads and in the voices of ones around us and in the media and tries to say everything but that. Those two simple words, if you remember nothing else from this message, we are in Christ. We're justified by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time, we're going to take our offering. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to worship. We thank you so much for your word. Lord, would you seal this message on our hearts? Lord, would you change us? Lord, would you allow us, Lord, to uh, remind us to chew on this truth? Lord, to run to it through the storms of life. Lord, that it would move us to run away from our sin, away from our insecurities, and run to you. Lord, I love what Gerald said in that book. Lord, that it's like a good mother with a child on her lap who's screaming and yelling. And that child screaming and yelling says so much. And the mother brings comfort. Lord, I pray that you would help us to run to you. When the suffering is intense and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight, Lord, when we feel pride creeping in and stealing our joy in you, Lord, when it seems like we're stale and our hearts have not been moved in years, when our eyes have not shed tears for the lost in a decade, Lord, that we would not listen to the voice of the condemner, but we would be reminded by you, Holy Spirit, that we are in Christ, that we would acclaim it against the accuser, that accuses us day and night and find life in you, you who justify us through faith and faith alone. In Jesus' name, amen.